Good day. My name is Heide Bursch. I am currently an associate at the College of Nursing. My clinical background is more than 18 years in critical care, bedside nursing. And this has led to my research interest in caregiver research as well as palliative care. Seems like a very logical transition to me. I get to talk to you today about dementia and transitions in care and hospice care. I have nothing to disclose. This first slide is a position paper by Mitchell and her large team of co-investigators from 2012. We see that there is a large spike in prevalence of ADRD, which is attributed to continued expectation for increasing longevity, and the baby boomers hitting the age of dementia between 2030 and 2050. Most expenses in ADRD care are at the last stage of the disease, where Medicaid pays for nursing home care. The global deterioration scale is an accurate descriptor of disease progression, but we're lacking risk models for actually predicting mortality. The 12-item advanced dementia prognostic tool was only 67% accurate, and hospice criteria were only 55% accurate for predicting six-month mortality. Probably because of the late diagnosis, it can be said that a long time is spent in the advanced stages of ADRD, where the evidence points to poor pain and symptom management, overuse of hospital transfers, which may be harmful for persons with advanced ADRD, and racial and regional disparities in care. Better palliative care outcomes are associated with advanced care planning, counseling of healthcare proxies, special care dementia units, use of hospice, and nurse practitioners on site in nursing homes. There are so many ways to travel through the same thickets of disease, so many choices to make, so many stations at which we may choose to rest, continue, or end the journey completely. At such times, it is not the kindness of strangers we need, but the understanding of a long-time medical friend. This quote is from a classic work by Newland, who was a thoracic surgeon, of all things, and articulated the need for continuity in primary care. He articulated our dilemma at the intersection of the art and science of medicine and nursing and social work and chaplaincy and family caregiving. In this slide, Tino and her team described changes in healthcare utilization, site of death, place of care, and transitions in 2000, 2005, and 2009. Uh, they identified three sub-cohorts. First, there were all decedents, of course, but then they also identified decedents with cancer, COPD, and dementia. 
according to the nurse theorist Afaf Malays, transitions are defined as a passage between two relatively stable periods of time where individuals move from life phase, situation, or status to another. Transitions are therefore turning points where we cannot continue business as usual. So using the Medicare denominator file, Tino and her team took uh, fee-for-service Medicare be beneficiaries who died, and they used billing data to identify the three sub-cohorts. They found that in general, hospitalizations were slightly down from 2000 to 2009. However, those who were hospitalized experienced higher acuity of care and increasing ICU stays before death. Looking at the lower right graph for the decedents with dementia, we can see an increase in hospice use in the nursing home and at home in the last 10 days before death. And we see an acute spike in hospitalizations in the last three days before death. Transitions in care for older adults with and without and dementia were described by Callahan and his team in a prospective cohort study. And he reviewed, they reviewed medical records for 4,200 urban community dwelling older adults in Indianapolis. The sample population included more than 1,500 persons with ADRD. They were 65 and older and came from primary care providers in a large community hospital. Mean follow-up was five and a half years from the time of enrollment. Transition percentages for each origin state, like home with services, home without, or hospital, or nursing facilities, should all add up to one. If it doesn't sum to one, it's because participants died. So for example, looking at the top diagram of outbound probabilities, we can see that the transitions out of the nursing facility, right here, for individuals with ADRD, 44% of them went to the hospital and 40 returned home without formal services and less than 10 went home with services. This means the chance to return home was about the same as the chance to be admitted to the hospital. And remember, this is a community-based sample. Similarly, individuals with dementia living at home without home health services, right here, had a 54% chance to be admitted to the hospital. Now looking at inbound transitions, hospitalized patients with ADRD had a 74% probability of transferring to a nursing home. That is this big black arrow as opposed to a 40% probability to return home without services, and only a 31% probability to return home with formal services. In the five and a half year observation window, there were exactly 610 deaths among participants with dementia.
Many of them died at home in this community-based sample. A third of them died in the hospital, and a fourth died in the nursing facility. Of those who died in the nursing facility, they died there after transferring to the hospital. 6.6 .6 died at home after returning from the nursing home, and they died within 30 days of returning home. So they truly were end stage. Now of those who died in the nursing facility, only 25% died with no other transitions. The authors also described ping-pong type transitions between sites of care. They refer to these as compound transitions. This slide describes transitions from the nursing facility. So the pattern of nursing home to hospital happened among 20% of the patients. The pattern of nursing home to home and then back to the hospital happened to 14% and the pattern of nursing home to home and then back to the nursing home appeared for 10% of the participants. Compound transitions beginning with transitions from the hospital, there were many. 73% of the persons with dementia had more than one hospitalization. 29% of these had the pattern hospital to nursing home to hospital. Of all persons with ADRD, not those who had more than one hospitalization, 28% had a 30-day or shorter rehospitalization. Of those, 17% were hospital to home with services to hospital. Many more of those who went home without services from the hospital had to go back to the hospital. And very many bounced from the hospital to the nursing home back to the hospital. 51% of these hospital to nursing home to hospital rehospitalizations occurred within 30 days. A summary for the transition findings from this study is divided into prevalent and incident dementia, and I have lumped the numbers together for, for ease. It's, they obviously had greater Medicare and Medicaid and healthcare utilization and nursing facility use compared to the cohort that was, by the way, matched for comorbidities but did not have dementia. They had a greater hospital and home health services use, significantly greater. And they had more transitions in care per person per year of follow-up, and more mean total transitions, 10 as opposed to about 4. And the majority of the 30-day rehospitalizations occurred from nursing homes, followed by returns from home without health care services. So rehospitalization needs to be addressed in the nursing home and the home setting where there is no health care service for caregivers at home.
My favorite M.C. Escher print depicts what family members really want to know when it comes to transitions. This was studied by Tolis and the team in 2012. Caregivers and residents ask, where are they going and why? And how does this impact future care? So now that we're all familiar with the various transitions happening within settings, between settings, across health states for the patient and for the family member, from spouse or child to caregiver to parent to stranger to bereaved, we need to ask ourselves who do we want to be and who should we be as healthcare providers to support patients and families through these transitions. Rose and Lopez have identified various transitions across the ADRD disease trajectory, and most of these were discussed in previous sessions. I just want to talk about T6 and T7 changes in care setting which is usually a nursing home admission and is very traumatic for caregivers and end of life where we hopefully transition to palliative or hospice care and caregivers both formal and informal need support in this. Rosen Lopez in this article lists valuable resources for uh, formal and informal caregivers available on Alzheimer's organization sites and other sites. These transitions are not necessarily arranged in a time sequence and pertinent to the final transitions is the need to initiate goals of care discussions early on and ideally prepare a pulse document when the time comes to assure transparent communication throughout all settings of care, you'll hear that many times, and to assess caregiver well-being because we have to treat the patient and the caregiver as one. To facilitate a continuity of care through transitions, there are various transitional care models in various settings. This is an example of supporting transitions from skilled nursing facility to home, and this was presented by Joanne Reefsnyder at the annual assembly in May this year of the American Association of Hospice and Palliative Care, Medicine and Nursing in New Orleans. They pretty much all, all transitional care models have the same components, uh, but this is particularly ag aggressive in not only referring to but facilitating access to community resources and practical support and focusing primarily on effective provider-to-provider -provider communication. And in my own practice, I have found it so helpful when staff from the long-term care facility come visit their ADRD patient in the hospital because they are an invaluable source of information for what is normal function and normal behavior and what might be signs of discomfort or pain or distress or fear 
hunger, thirst. They also can tell us about the interaction and the stage of preparedness that the family is at. So how do people with ADRD die? I've listed for you the presenting physical signs um, in advanced stages of the disease. Immobility, swallowing disorders which lead to pneumonia, malnutrition and incontinence which leads to decubit high and other infections, and the symptom burden that combined with other concurrent chronic illness that is pretty significant. The question is, when you look at these symptoms, do patients die with ADRD or from ADRD? More and more, dementia is considered to be a life-limiting, if not terminal, illness, with individuals dying from the natural course of the disease, which ultimately is an infection. The Cascade study from 2009 describes the clinical course of advanced dementia. Over 18 months, 323 persons with uh, GDS stage 3 dementia were followed. More than half of them died. 41% contracted pneumonia. 51% had febrile episodes or other infections. And 86% developed eating problems. There was rarely any other acute illness, such as hip fractures or MI and all of them showed increasing pain and shortness of breath toward death. As published by the American Association of Neurologists in 2011, a work group has articulated quality outcomes and the necessary processes and the necessary process measures to arrive at these outcomes, at these quality outcomes. They found that most are underused or absent in current practice, particularly those pertaining to palliative and hospice care. This includes the lack of supporting patients and caregivers in the community setting, ongoing assessment of caregiver well-being and treatment, and ongoing assessment and treatment of the patient they recommend every uh, six months. Timely assessment of knowledge, literacy, culture, and values of the patient and family dyad. Timely advanced care planning. And ongoing review of disease progression and goals of care. And then, of course, again, the lack of communication across settings of care. Their dementia performance measurement set has uh, recommendations for the necessary counseling to patients and families to plan for care. And it addresses hospitalization, treatment for infections, surgery, artificial nutrition and hydration, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, ventilation, comfort care, timing of a natural death because we want to time things, don't we? And hospice referral. Ideally, all these talking points would be captured in a POLST-type document. And here in Iowa, we have the Iowa Physician Order for Scope of Treatment. 
And Merce Bernklug and Jane Dorman talked to you about that last time. Guidelines for Alzheimer's disease management have, are a broad umbrella. They come, these particular ones come from the California Work Group, and it's to maximize comfort care through hospice referral, avoid futile care and prolongation of the dying process, discuss tube feedings, review and simplify medication regimen, and assess and respect the patient's and family's cultural values and preferences. So, how's my dying? Imagine the sign above your patients with ADRD bed. This patient, if he could talk, would not be asking about how is my pressure ulcer? How is it I still can't talk? How is my swallowing? How is my pain? He's asking, how is my entire symptom presentation coming along? So before I want to go to the next slide, I have to acknowledge that discussions about end-of-life care in any setting are best done in, in a dialogue, not in a lecture format. It's important to pay attention to ambiguities, differing values, and strongly held beliefs by all of us. As clinicians, we have to acknowledge the fact that death with ADRD will occur from one cause or another eventually. And we have a pretty good idea of how it will happen. We apply this knowledge skillfully and artfully, each according to our own educational level and comfort, level of comfort and preparedness, and hopefully in a manner that is respectful of the entire story of persons with ADRD and their family members. Caregivers do seek guidance and permission, especially in end-of-life care and nursing home placement. So now I go to the actual recommendations and the most specific, courageous, and therefore contentious recommendations I found are taken from a review by Lucier and others out of Montreal. CPR. Many get it. Very, very, very few of them survive. It has a lot of adverse effects for the survivors. And decisions about CPR should be made early on, before the crisis occurs. And the, his recommendation, the team's recommendation, is that patients and families should be advised against it to avoid unnecessary suffering to the patient. Volandes and others, by the way, have developed um, videos that are extremely successful in helping caregivers understand the natural progression of advanced dementia. They showed that it allowed families and, and caregivers to make decisions that, that were difficult and they had less decisional conflict with that, greater comfort, better understanding of the disease progression, and more knowledge of each step along the way. And this video actually worked for caregivers of all ethnicities and cultural backgrounds.
Enteral feeding. The decision to place or withhold a peg tube is difficult, both for the family and the healthcare team, especially if there's no advanced directive on that issue. However, it happens in 34%, and it's usually due to the disease, dysphagia, refusal to open the mouth, inability to recognize food, and perhaps a lower basal metabolic rate and caloric needs. A recent study shows that tube feeding does not prevent malnutrition or pressure source and does not improve survival or functional status. There are post-operative complications, as shown in a Cochrane review, and they accounted for 47% of ED visits. Uh, the recommendation, therefore, is comfort feeding. Um, it was found that um, feeding tube placement is influenced by organizational culture. As an, as an alternative, we are developing um, skilled hand feeding, which is not reimbursed by Medicare, whereas peg tube feeding is. It does require much more time, and there is therefore little incentive to implement this skilled hand feeding in nursing homes. There are tube feeding decision aids, again, several of them in video form or survey form, and they have been shown to, again, decrease decisional conflict and increase confidence in opting for hand feeding among family caregivers. Hydration is another difficult thing. It's important for family members that patients don't suffer from thirst. Thirst is a symptom that usually does not respond to medical treatments and is best treated by small amounts of fluid or ice chips and keeping the resident's mouth and lips moist. Dehydration, on the other hand, has disconcerting physical symptoms. Some of those can be remedied without administration of IV fluids for example, keeping the skin hydrated, the mucous membranes hydrated, applying patches to decrease oral secretions, managing headaches, irritability with pain relief, understanding that weight loss is a natural progression of the disease, and managing constipation with laxatives. Parenteral hydration, whether it's via IV or hypodermoclysis, is associated with risks and discomforts. However, temporary hydration might be appropriate in the event of an acute illness. Uh, so the recommendation for people who have stopped oral intake of fluids is to continue to try to support that oral intake with um, small interventions like offering frequent fluids and ice chips and good mouth care. And if you're opting not to hydrate, then to be very vigilant in managing the symptoms of discomfort. Dehydration is also a part of active dying, and the hospice literature acknowledges that IV hydration in the stage of active dying is actually harmful because it contributes to pulmonary edema and increases shortness of breath. A 
Acute care hospitalization is very contentious. Uh, it usually happens for suspected infection, and it's associated for persons with ADRD of a younger age. And whether the event is um, actual infection versus just a febrile episode, whether there is COPD, and then the lack of a do not hospitalize order. There are many complications to hospitalizations for persons with ADRD. Delirium, falls, decreased food intake because there's no time to feed them there, nosocomial infections, pressure ulcers, and iatrogenic complications, for example, UTIs, to the catheters used in the hospital. Hospitalization may actually increase the risk for mortality and definitely contributes to functional deterioration. Paradoxically, patients in the hospital are less likely to receive palliative care because, after all, they came for a cure, not for palliation. So hospitalization is a difficult decision because we don't know what is an avoidable hospitalization. Uh, studies that used indicators of illness sensitive to ambulatory care services found that infection and falls are the most frequently avoidable hospital admissions. Again, we come back to our healthcare system, the fee-for-service reimbursement environment, where there are financial incentives for nursing homes to transfer patients to the hospital every 90 days for renewal of their SNF benefits. Gibbons described the nature of the hospital transfers, and uh, most people come from the nursing home where they should be getting end-of-life care. And if the goal of care is comfort, then hospitalization is not usually consistent with comfort. Givens found that the majority of ED visits, again, were feeding tube complications and the majority of hospitalizations were infections. Now, treatment of acute illnesses and infections, such as cardiac events, pulmonary embolism, cancer, or infection. It's always important to weigh the benefits and harms of the treatment for each of these conditions. And whatever we decide, we do have to manage discomfort or pain related to these decisions. Up to 40% of persons with ADRD receive antimicrobials in the last two weeks of life. And nursing home residents with ADRD are three times more likely to be colonized with antimicrobial resistant strains. Uh, Vandersteen, by the way, found that if we decide to give antibiotics, they do need to be given with fluids in order to be successful. Pneumonia might be responsible for up to 40% of deaths, and there is no consensus of how to treat such pneumonia. There's insufficient evidence for treatment benefit toward long-term survival, although we've seen improved 10-day survival. Uh, of course, there are adverse effects of antibiotic therapy, uh, and it's associated with discomfort. Uh, mainly, I'm thinking here about C. difficile restraints and pain at the site and catheters and whatnot. So the decision should be based on clinical judgment as well as on the patient's and surrogate decision maker's wishes.
Now, treatment of chronic diseases, we are called to simplify medication regimen in advanced dementia. And we still need more evidence to guide such withdrawal of medications. Uh, but we do have to question the efficacy of some medications in view of a shortened life expectancy. This list is from a literature review, a recent literature review, and Delphi consensus panel, and I just have it here for your information. Symptom management in end-stage dementia uh, starts with pain management. It's, we know it is under-assessed and under-treated. Persons with ADRD experience as much pain as persons without ADRD, even though they may not be able to express it in the same way. We always need to consider their chronic pain conditions, and there are many, degenerative joint disease, uh, arthritis, spinal stenosis, pressure sores, or contractures. The prevalence of pain is estimated to be as high as 80% in nursing home residents with dementia. So we have to look for nonverbal pain behaviors when communication becomes impossible, and several scales have been developed and some of them are validated and reliable and have been discussed earlier. I have listed the pain behaviors from the American Geriatric Society for your information. Next in symptom management is behavior disturbance and agitation. Neuropsych symptoms are present in 85% of hospice-eligible nursing home residents with advanced dementia, and they consist mostly of aggression and agitation, depression, anxiety, aberrant motor behaviors, and apathy, withdrawal, and lethargy. These behaviors can also be provoked uh, by environmental threats or stimuli, and are connected to resistiveness to care. If they are not connected to resistiveness to care, uh, we need to rule out pain. And Husable is only one of several nurse researchers who have investigated and demonstrated the effectiveness of a stepwise approach to pain management in order to reduce behavior disturbance and agitation. In the presence of agitation without any identifiable cause, it's reasonable to empirically prescribe an analgesic regimen, including acetaminophen and opioids. Low doses of long-acting opioids have been shown to decrease aggression in, in persons with dementia who did not respond to neuroleptics. We also have to rule out thirst, hunger, sleep difficulties, uh, constipation, sensory deprivation or overstimulation, social withdrawal towards the end of life, and discomfort caused simply by being uncomfortable in the bed, or an intercurrent illness or infection, and of course the adverse effects of delirium or medications. There are non-pharmacologic approaches to manage agitation in persons with ADRD, and they include music, sense, light touch, and massage.
or voice and presence. The next two slides are going to be quite provocative. Um, it talks about continuous palliative sedation in elderly patients. I have not really found anything uh, of application of continuous palliative sedation specifically for dementia patients. However, I have encountered the request for it in clinical practice. Frequently enough, terminal agitation is refractory to any other approach of treatment and very uncomfortable for family members to witness. So they will find themselves asking for something akin to continuous palliative sedation to death. So this is a Dutch study where they sent out questionnaires to physicians. They had a 54% response rate. And these physicians reported 300 cases with the majority of the patients being cancer or dementia patients. The refractory symptoms that initiated CPS were pain, anxiety, exhaustion, dyspnea, delirium, loss of dignity, and existential distress. And the latter two intrigue me because they're not generally mentioned in the uh, American sedation literature. In 98% of cases, CPS was aimed at symptom relief, not to facilitate death, and it was successful in doing that in 89% of the cases. Um, physicians used midazolam sub-Q for this. Um, of note is that the cancer patients, 17% uh, of them had actually previously requested euthanasia, which is legal in the Netherlands. The previous study and this study, neither one of them describe how physicians arrived at the decisions for continuous palliative sedation and what the involvement of family caregivers was in that decision. So this study replicates the Dutch survey, sort of, among U.S. physicians. They too mailed out surveys and had a 62% rate. Uh, the results were that 1 in 10 physicians had sedated a patient in the previous 12 months with the specific intention of making the patient unconscious until death. Only 1 in 10. However, 2 of 3 physicians opposed sedation towards that purpose for existential suffering, both in principle and in the case of a hypothetical dying vignette. Existential suffering was defined in the Dutch study as suffering that cannot be alleviated by communication or spiritual support. These patients have often been through a great deal of distress, are often extremely ill and weak, close to death, and have a range of physical complaints, some of them often severe. The patient's body has reached its end, literally and figuratively, and everything that needed saying has been said, and there is the feeling that one's existence is empty or meaningless. This is a, a fairly philosophical um, definition for a clinical indicator, and I'm not surprised that in the U.S. we have problems with this de definition. In the previous study, the dementia patients had stopped eating 
And so it was a matter of also managing the symptoms of uh, starvation and dehydration. This study did not break down into the type of patients that were sedated. 31% of these physicians thought that sometimes physicians should treat the psychological and spiritual suffering of the terminally ill patients by sedating the patient to unconsciousness. And again, the psychological and spiritual suffering is more in the philosophical realm of, of existential experience. And this may compare to what the Dutch described as existential suffering. 69% agreed that each person had the right to decide whether to hasten the end of his or her life. And 42% agreed that sometimes it's the right thing to do to facilitate that for a patient. Most of the physicians agreed in the double effect application of sedation in that unconsciousness is an acceptable side effect but should not be directly intended. Again, these two slides are provocative. The final symptom in managing end-stage dementia is depression. The prevalence is estimated at 6 to 27 percent. Recent evidence from 2011 shows that uh, sertraline and mirtazapine are probably not effective in this population. More evidence is needed to study the effects of non-pharmacological interventions for depression in advanced dementia. And of course, depression in advanced dementia is very difficult to assess. There are many barriers to palliative care, not all of them specific just for dementia. But in dementia, we have the special case of the ethical challenge in respect to autonomy. And we're questioning the meaning of the self. We don't know if this patient is his old self, and should we treat him as his old self, or should we treat him as a new self with a different set of goals of care and values and wishes. And then, of course, there is the problem of determining futility of care, which is a problem in most disease presentations. And prognostication is very difficult towards the end of life. We question the right to choose death. Should people have the right to choose death? There's futility. There's always something you can do for this person, theoretically, but is it the right thing to do? There's disagreement about whether impending death from dementia would merit withdrawing treatment for comorbidities, which in effect might hasten death. And there's even disagreement about whether we should worry about the suffering that severe dementia imposes on caregivers and other family members. Should we continue to focus on autonomy or should we shift our focus to how this disease affects not only the patient, but the family? The inadequacy of end-of-life care for people with ADRD, therefore, reflects broad disagreements 
about how to balance patient autonomy against other values. Policies that create financial and legal incentives to provide intensive care at the end of life create barriers to extending the use of palliative care uh, in, in all populations and also in for patients with ADRD. So Guzmano, in his ethical review of palliative care for ADRD, says that collective decision-making at the bedside within the social, cultural, and institutional context is the best approach. And he says that decisions maybe have to be uncomfortable and problematic. Anytime we make decisions about when and how to die, it is probably uncomfortable and problematic. This last slide gives you the hospice guidelines again. Uh, they were shown to you by Bern Klug and Dorman in the previous session. And as I said, they're only 5% better than chance in predicting six-month mortality. So the consensus is that hospice care should be guided not by prognosis, but rather a preference, whether there is a focus for the remaining time on comfort and quality of life for persons with ADRD and their caregivers, or whether there is a focus on maintaining life at all costs. Thank you for accompanying persons with ADRD and their family members through the last stage of the disease and offering your guidance and empowerment for what is to come.